Amen. So, we are starting a new series called Bring It. And uh, this is about revival. Do you want to see revival? Yeah, amen. I think we're, I think we're, uh, we're walking that direction. Amen? We are walking that direction. I want to see revival. I want to see God move in a powerful way. I want to see what He has in store for us. So let's look at this topic, understand what's going on, and uh, get into revival. First question, of course, is what is revival? Right? If we want to have revival, we need to know what it is. Now, what I've noticed when you talk with pastors, everybody has a different definition of revival. They all have different expectations. For some, it means, well, you start on Sunday night and you go till the next Sunday night and you have meetings every night. And they have to be at least two to three hours and there's got to be prayer time at the end where a bunch of people come down and uh, preferably it's a highly emotionally charged experience for people. Um, but it's in the church. You know, that's revival. And we plan it out. From this date to this date, we are having revival. There are other people that they like the big tent meetings. You know what I mean? Like we're going to come into town and we're going to have a big fancy band play and we're going to have a big speaker and we're going to have a revival and it's going to be great. And people, we're going to give a, a, a very palatable salvation message. And people will come and get saved and it'll be awesome. It'll be great. With life-changing, palatable message. And uh, so that's what they think of revival. Some people think revival is, you know, home church is breaking out. Home church is popping up all over. It's revival. Other people think revival is just people walking out into their Workplaces and their schools and sharing their faith one-on-one with their friends and acquaintances. So, you know, some people think if you're not speaking in tongues, you don't have revival. What is this thing? What is revival? You know, I think, uh, I think Christians do too much thinking and not enough doing. Amen? You, you guys are with me on that. You understand the hook is in them. I mean, you under, if I, if I say you're doing too much thinking and not enough doing, you're like, amen. And then you're, you're on board with what? With the doing. Yeah. That means you're ready to be doing some doing. So, so you just, just letting you know the hook is there. So I am reeling and, uh, we'll, we'll see how far we get. It's important to be a doer of the word of God. It's important to experience the teachings of God, not just in a theoretical way, but in a practical way. I think when we sit around a table and discuss revival, we can have all kinds of ideas. But when we try to live in that place, we are going to experience something very different from sitting around the table and talking about revival. Do you remember the the Scripture... Some people don't even realize this is the words of Jesus, uh, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's Jesus. The truth will set you free. Have you heard that? The truth will set you free. Do you know what Jesus said connected with that, the sentence right before it? 
Very important sentence in John chapter 8. Let's read what Jesus had to say to the Jews who had believed Him. So these are believers. He's trying to turn the believers into doers. Okay? He's got some believers. To the Jews who had believed Him, Jesus said, If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What were these teachings that they were going to hold to? Things like, forgive men when they sin against you. How do you hold to that teaching? You actually forgive. You don't just know that that's what you're supposed to do. You actually do it. Is it a different thing to check on the box, Jesus wants people to forgive. Okay. True, false, I got it right on my Sunday school test. Is that different from actually walking through the process of forgiving someone? Oh my goodness, that can be a huge process. That can be a mountain that needs to be cast into the sea that you run up against and you roll back down that mountain over and over again and it is a battle. You learn it in a whole different way when you try to walk in it than if you just acknowledge, okay, yeah, Jesus said something about forgiveness and whatever. It's a whole different thing when you try to live it. How about love your enemies? Did Jesus say that too? Love your enemies. If you hold to my teaching, if you actually do that. Now again, I don't consider these things to be mere choices. I don't think forgiveness is a mere choice. I think it's a... Uh, a spiritual level of attainment. We get to a place where we have forgiven, where we have the strength in our heart to be able to do that. It's something that we, we get to eventually as we grow and develop in the Lord. But it's not just a choice. Like love your enemies. That's a tough one. But do you think if you really got to know that, you'd be set free? How many times have you had those thoughts run through your head? Like in the middle of the night, you're trying to get to sleep and you're just really mad at somebody and you can't not think about how mad at them you are? Has that ever happened to anybody? Probably, probably not. But, uh, you know, <laughs> not anybody in here. You know, those terrible people out there. Imagine how free you would be if you could just pray for them and be done and have peace in your mind. Imagine if you could forgive that way and you just pray, offer forgiveness, and be done. How free would you be? You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's different when you walk it out than it is when you just sort of know it's supposed to be there. And revival is the same way. Revival is the same way. When we are revived and strong and walking in the fullness of God, mighty things happen. But I've seen more people expect revival to come from somewhere else. Somebody else is supposed to do the hey, they should be doing revival. Those jokers, how come they're not doing revival? They should be doing it. But where's it going to happen? 
I heard a wonderful teaching on revival, which I consider to be the simplest and most profound teaching on revival ever. The revivalist was teaching and he said, okay, you guys want revival? And they're like, yep. He's like, okay. I want you to go home and get a piece of chalk. And take that chalk, find yourself a nice spot in your house where you're all alone. Take that chalk, draw a circle around your feet. And stay in that circle until revival breaks out in that circle. And then come back here and we'll have revival. Now, amen? Amen. But it's easier to say they should be doing revival. They should, somebody's got to do something about that. Well, we have to do that. Now, I believe, I'm going to give you my definition of revival. You want my definition? It's a very simple and wonderfully vague definition. So, here's my definition. Because it can mean a lot of different things to different people, and it's not necessarily illegitimate. So we need to define our terms. My definition of revival is when people fully yield to God. When people fully yield to God. Have you ever partially yielded to God? You experienced that? Let's maybe revive, you know, we've got, we've got some of it. We're getting started, but revival is when people fully yield to God. Then God can do what God wants. What do you think God could do with a hammer? You know, if you're like, Hey, unleash all your creativity and your power. Use this hammer to do something. You think God could do something awesome with a hammer? How about with a person? What's the difference between a person and a hammer? Hammer never says no. Hammer never says forget it. I ain't doing that. What if people put themselves in the hand of God and fully yielded to His will Completely. That is revival. In 1983, there was revival in Jamaica. They had revival meetings. They had a big tent revival. And at that big tent revival, a number of people went forward. One of, it, one of them was a guy named Gary, who you saw in that video holding a yam. And another was a guy named Michael, who's preached here. The two of them were actually in a street fight with each other prior to getting saved. And it seemed clear when I talked to him that Gary was the one that came out on top. Uh, (laughs) But they both got saved in 1983 as younger teenagers, 13, 14, somewhere in there. And just when they were at that, maybe 15, at that place of, well, you go down that road much farther and you're in real trouble. They got saved. They've been serving the Lord ever since with the natural experiences of serving God. And they're now pastors, uh, director of a children's home, and the uh, superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Jamaica. Big tent revivals are wonderful things. Little groups of people coming together and serving God, walking arm in arm, that's a wonderful thing. 
People sharing their faith one-on-one with people. That's a wonderful thing. Church services that are hopping. That's a wonderful thing. We don't need to pick. What we need to do is yield. And let God do what God wants to do. Let me give you a primary foundational concept for revival. This is very, very important. Here is the concept. God will do His part every time. God will do His part every time. We never need to worry if God is going to do His part or just leave us hanging. God will do His part every time. Let's read Malachi chapter 3. Seth will put it up on the screen. Starts off pretty straightforward. I, the Lord, do not change. Does He change? No. The same yesterday, today, and forever. I, the Lord, do not change. We can always count on Him. He will always do His part. God will do His part every time. God does not change ever. Now, is this good news for us or bad news for us? It happens to be good news. Because He's a good God. And He doesn't go back and forth between being a good God and being a grumpy God. Being a good God who loves us and knows us to a God who's ignoring us and has forgotten about us. He does not go back and forth. He does not change like shifting shadows. He's the same. Now look at this. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Hallelujah. Do you know what day it is today? Today is the day of salvation. You know, it's Groundhog Day too. And I, I remember as a kid thinking, why did they put Groundhog Day in the middle of winter? You know, why... Why wouldn't they put it more like April, you know, when there's a chance it could warm up? But (laughs) today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God gives us the chance to sin, to fail, to turn from God, and He does not destroy us. Because that promise of salvation is lingering in the air. Today is the day of salvation, so we are not destroyed. Today is the day of God's favor, so we are not destroyed. And it was the same thing then to those people. And he's, and the, the Lord uh, makes sure they understand that they're not quite cutting it. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. This is a character trait of God that does not change. It's not that sometimes if we turn to God, that He just doesn't want to have anything to do with us. It's always He does not change. When we return to Him, He returns to us. He will do His part every time. 
He does not change like shifting shadows. His character is unwavering. He does His part every time. Got it? All right. Excellent. Praise God. So let's talk about the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to read through this. A few editorial comments along the way. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. We're going to read about the first half of this until the, the younger one comes back. We won't talk about the older son maybe another time when we're talking about Christians not messing up revival. You know? Jesus continued. Oh, I got, I'm already editorializing. Did you know what Jesus did? The paradigm shift that He brought to the religious culture? The way He changed the way people think about sinners. Jesus took the concept of the sinner and it used to be, well, those are the bad people that we need to get rid of. Those are the ones that we need to discard. Those are the ones that need to be stoned. You know, they're the ones that need to be eliminated. They're the bad people. We need to destroy them. He said, no, 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 no. no. These are people that God loves. These are the lost sheep where the 99 will be left and the one will be sought after. These are like a lost coin. These are valuable human beings. And a tremendous sacrifice will be made for them. And He was the one to do that tremendous sacrifice. He brought that paradigm shift of the sinner is not to be cast aside, but to be valued and sought after, to be brought in. It was a profound paradigm shift in the thinking of the religious culture. And hopefully we can keep a hold of that one. Because doesn't that sort of slip away sometimes? Keep a hold of that. All right. Just, Just getting started. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Good decision? Eh. What did he have when he left? He had a huge wad of cash. Right? That's what he had on the outside. What did he have with him on the inside? What was his heart heart like? Rebellion? He was rebellious? Selfish? Absolutely. Who was he thinking about? Who was he serving? He was serving him. A lot of Christians today, I think, look at their God in the mirror. They got their (laughs) co-pilot, but their main pilot is the dude in the mirror. Selfish. Did he figure he had it all figured out? Had life by the tail. Proud. I'm not going to do it your way. I'm doing it my way. That's what he carried with him out. And then he squandered everything. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who set him sent him to his fields to feed pigs. So, he's experiencing an economic downturn. 
a personal downturn coupled with a societal downturn. He crashed at the same time everybody else around him crashed, and now there's no one to help him. But he does get a job feeding pigs, apparently not paid very well, because he can't afford the slop that he's feeding the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. At that point, what did he have? Did he have his pride still? His rebellion? His selfishness? His wad of cash? That stuff is going away. And something happens to him. He comes to his senses. One of my very favorite verses in the, all of Scripture. When he came to his senses. Hallelujah. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. Let's see what he's going to say. He's planning this out. He's thinking it through. i got to have something to say. And so he looks in his heart and he has something to say. He's bringing something back to his father. He's like, i got to bring something. I can't bring money because that's gone. What's he going to bring? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. What's he bringing? He's bringing humility. He's bringing servitude. He's bringing a contrite heart, which we'll talk about in just a minute. He's bringing something different. The stuff he took with him when he left, what do you think the father felt about that situation? The younger son has a wad of cash and a heart for wild living. How do you think the father felt? He's thinking, I know where this is going. Rock bottom's about to happen. And he just sadly watches him walk away. He had half of the father's estate. And he walked away with it. Now he comes back without that. But he has something else. How does the father feel about the thing he brings back? He's got something more valuable than a wad of cash when he comes back. Let's see how the father reacts. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Oh, to bring something to the father that will elicit that reaction. Amen? Oh, to bring an offering to the living God that will make Him run. That will make Him throw His arms around you, kiss you, and throw a party for you. Yeah. 
Because it, it doesn't stop here. Just keep going. Because he's like, everybody's getting in on this. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, notice, he interrupted him halfway through his speech. He doesn't even get to say, make me one of your servants. He just, he's just like, hey, guys, go, go set the table. But the father said to to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Does that sound like revival to you? What can we bring to the table for revival? What the prodigal son brought to the father is described in Isaiah chapter 57. Seth is just going to throw that up there real quick. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and lofty one says. The high and lofty one. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. So this is God Almighty living in a high and holy place. He's up there at the top of the ladder. Is that the only place He is? I live in a high and holy place, but also with Him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Lowly and contrite. I believe this is the state of the prodigal son when he comes back to the father in that parable. Lowly and contrite. Lowly, I think, is probably better translated humbly. In a a humble heart. He's humbled. He is no longer proud. He is no longer standing in his awesomeness. He no longer thinks he's got the world by the tail and got everything figured out. He's gone out and figured out he doesn't. And so he's coming back humble. And contrite. I looked up contrite. I wasn't really sure what it meant. <laughs> I love the information age. You get to find out what's going on. Contrite, it basically means broken or crushed. Do you know there's a good kind of broken? Like there's a good kind of pride. You know, I mean, it's okay to have good self-esteem and to feel like you're doing a job well and that sort of thing. That's okay. There's the other, there's the ugly pride. We probably should have different words for that, but there's a broken that's bad. And there's a broken that's good. This is the good kind of broken. This is where you've quit fighting against God. You're just tired of it. You've been fighting, you've been fighting, you've been resisting, you've been resisting, and it hasn't worked, and you're broken. Contrite. This Communion Sunday, I'm anticipating that people are going to get the communion stuff. That would be extremely helpful. I want to tell you, God always does His part 
every time. And I know what he does when he is presented with a humble and contrite heart. He runs to it. He throws his arms open. So if we want revival, what do we need to bring to the table? A humble and contrite heart. Contrite, again, broken. In that good sense. Because you know what I mean. There's the bad broken. There's a broken spirit that's a defeated spirit. This is a spirit that has chosen to yield. Not, not defeated, but now yielding. Uh, it would be like a horse. You know, you got a horse that's unbroken. Somebody has to climb up on that thing and break it. Let's go ahead and start handing stuff out. Again, it's the first Sunday of the month. Time for communion. I got my tie on. All spiffy. Yeah. Once a month I get all dressed up to make the dressed up people feel good. And then uh, other times, man, I got options here. Other times I, uh, thank you. Yeah, you. Everybody can get theirs, hold it, and then I'll pray for it after everybody is is got their stuff and then we'll participate together in communion. Hey, good hope. If you want to participate, great. If you don't, fine. But if you do, make it real. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's nothing wrong with just giving a little hand motion and passing on the elements. Um, but if you're gonna, if you're gonna do communion, let's do it. Let's do it for real. You know, let's be open to the, to the living God as to what he has. So this contrite heart, it's like a, a brokenness. It's like a horse that is broken. Now the rider can guide the horse. Now, if you're a horse person, the rider and the horse can develop a tremendous relationship. If the horse bucks the rider off, what kind of relationship do they have? It's not so great. But if that horse and that rider, they're on the same page, they're working together, the rider says this way and the horse goes that way, the rider says stop, the horse stops, they can get, they can get in communion with one another. Where they're, they're walking together through this thing. Some horses are harder to break than others. And some people resist God and resist God and resist God and buck him off and fight and fight and fight. I want to encourage you this morning to not put yourself through too much unnecessary pain. Revival is when people fully yield to God. When he says, go right, and it just, go right. He says, stop. And we go. 
the horse that still needs to be broken is in for some difficult times. And the person who will not fully yield to God is in for some difficult times. I want to encourage you this morning to not put yourself through unnecessary pain. There's enough already. Let alone the stuff that we suffer because we will not yield to the living God. If we want revival, the first thing we bring is a humble and contrite heart. A humble heart saying, hey, I'll, I know I used to be a son, but I'll be a servant. And a broken heart in that sense of, I will yield to you. It will do what you show me. I won't fight. I'll go. When we come to the Father like that, He runs with open arms. The good news about yielding to the living God is that He is good. He loves us and He wants good things for us. What we remember with communion is that Jesus valued us enough when He knew the wrongs we would commit. He valued us enough to rescue us from our own mistakes, from our own rejection of Him, if you were one of those like me, our own bucking of Him, <laughs> knowing the relationship, but fighting it and resisting it. He made a sacrifice for us that we could be completely free, completely forgiven, in a right relationship with Him, and ready to go forward. It was a big price, but it bought something bigger. Amen? Let's appreciate what Jesus did this morning. And let's pray together. Father, I thank You for sending Your Son Jesus to this earth to suffer things He did not deserve, to go through things He shouldn't have had to go through, that people like us could be saved, that people like us could be given the time to not be destroyed so we could come before You with a humble and contrite heart. We thank You for what You've done. We acknowledge it. Lord Jesus, we thank You for what You were willing to suffer for each one of us. Your grace and Your love, Your mercy, Your kindness. It's, it's amazing. So we give You praise. And we recognize what you did right now. This is the body of Christ that was broken for you. And this is the blood of Christ which was shed for you. Praise be to your name. I'm going to invite the prayer team forward.
Would you want to come before your Father in Heaven with a humble and contrite heart? This is a good place to do it right here. In Malachi, they asked, how do, how do, we, how do we return to you? How do we do that? Well, right here, what we can do is we can come down Spend some time in prayer with the prayer team. If you if you need to come down in, in a little bit, I'll just open the altar up. You can come down and just say, "Hey, I, I I'm coming before the Father with a humble and contrite spirit," and they will pray with you and help you through that. If you have any other type of need, you need prayer, physical need, relational need, financial need, whatever it is, when God's people pray. God's hand moves. It's an amazing, wonderful thing. So I'm going to invite people to come down in just a second. If you're not one that's coming down for prayer and you're heading out, um, please say hi to somebody you don't know. Encourage them in the Lord. Um, a big piece of being a Christian is loving other Christians. And so that can be done right there. So I encourage you to do that. Well, let's close. Father, we give You praise. We honor You. We want to see revival and we know it starts with humble hearts that yield to You fully, that are broken like a trained horse yielding to You in every way. We just give You praise for Your mercy. Give You praise for Your patience. Thank You, Lord, for what You've done. Father, I speak of a blessing over all these people. Oh Lord, let Your light shine in our hearts. Let Your peace and love just well up within us. Let Your Spirit go with us. And Lord, let Your light shine everywhere we go, in our families, at our workplaces, our schools, wherever we go. Let Your light shine. So bless us. Let us walk in Your ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you need prayer again, come on down. Otherwise, have a wonderful day. Enjoy the afternoon.